0: Dot com slash lincoln odoo modern management made simple hey everyone it's reed before we get started just want to make sure that you're following along with the lincoln project on all of our coverage regarding the january 6th committee hearings testimony has been explosive the evidence has been damning against donald trump and his attempt to steal the 2020 election i hope you'll follow us and understand just how close we were to losing it all and now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reid Galen. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dietmar Peekler, political advisor and media literacy expert. He's also the co-founder of Vienna Goes Europe, a nonpartisan, pro-democratic, pro-European association, as well as the programmatic director for the Center for Digital Media Literacy, where one of his latest campaigns investigates Russian disinformation in relation to Ukraine and Europe as a whole. Today, he is coming to us from Vienna, Austria, and Dietmar, you might be our longest-distance guest yet, so welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a great honor to be here.
0: So, Dietmar, today I want to talk about you know, how crucial it is to have media literacy as a defense against disinformation and autocracy. But first, I want to talk about the 2022 G7 Summit and the recent Madrid NATO Summit, and take this opportunity to get a sense of the state of the European region as a whole, especially in regards to Ukraine. So in these summits last week, much of the pro-democratic world publicly reaffirmed their support of Ukraine and condemned Russia for its invasion. President Biden here in the US has vowed that both America and its NATO allies will stay with Ukraine as long as it takes. But there have been some reports behind the scenes of conversations that indicate some European countries maybe aren't as unified in the mission as they're publicly portraying. So can you give us an overview of how you see it from your perch you know, vis-a-vis Ukraine and how you see Europe holding on to its sort of pro-democracy roots in the fight against Russia and all of the misinformation and disinformation that comes with it?
1: Yeah, thank you very much. This is a good question because if I would give an answer that is confusing, I would say Europe is divided indeed, but Europe is also united. What does it mean exactly? It sounds contradicting. Europe is united in the sense that we condemn the Russian aggression against Ukraine. So words are quite clear. We are crystal clear most of the time, at least. But if you take a look, what are smaller politicians, what MPs, for instance, in Austria are posting on Facebook, then you see they are very heavily influenced by uh, Russian narratives, by anti-Ukrainian narratives. And this is the stakeholder view of the situation, so if we speak about people who are actually decision makers. but. When you compare, for instance, countries like Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, they have a very clear stance against Russia, also because of their history, but they know what to do and they know what they are dealing with. If you take a look at France or Germany, it's quite different. It's not only because of business relations with the Russian Federation, but it has also a lot to do with the disinformation campaign that Russia is engaging against Europe since 10 years, especially the last eight years. And many people are influenced by that. And this gives an effect to the public opinion. And you know, politicians want to get elected. And if our public opinion is very much influenced by disinformation, then politicians start to act according to the disinformation. And this is very dangerous. So they, if you see that some of the rhetorics, doesn't matter if G7 or NATO meetings, if you see some behind the scenes, and some interviews where they are not crystal clear in their position towards Russia. This is because they want to please voters who are heavily influenced by Russian narratives in Europe. And so I'm
0: fascinated by, obviously, President Zelensky, but also the leadership, as you mentioned, of the Baltic states and Poland, but also Finland and Sweden, which I believe were given, were put on a fast track to join NATO this week as a result of the Madrid conference. Is it simply history and proximity that has made these Eastern European countries so much more resolute in their positions? Because it seems like the Germans are waffling, you know, the French with President Macron said, we don't want to embarrass him, we have to give him an off-ramp.
1: So how do you see that? To be more precise, it has also a lot to do with geography. Because Geography and history is connected if we take a look at the Soviet-Finnish war, for instance, but it's also the, the present. Russian aircrafts are violating Swedish and Finnish airspace all the time, and the people are aware that it's very dangerous. In Gotland, a Swedish island, the military was preparing since months, even before the invasion of Ukraine, because they thought there is an actual threat from the Russian Federation. So we are talking about facts here. And I think the difference is in France and Germany, people, they can't even imagine how fast things can escalate also towards the European Union or NATO countries. So it's not only um, history, it has also a lot to do with geography, with experiences in present. And it depends on the political leadership. And we see that there is a very progressive leadership for instance in Finland and in Sweden very female also and somehow i see a tendency in Europe that female leaders we also see it in the Baltic states they have a very clear position towards Russia, and some like to say the old white guys, I don't like it, the term there, so don't put me in that corner, but they think they can make a deal with Putin. But actually, I, unfortunately, I don't think there is a deal that would bring any fortune to Europe.
0: Let me ask you that, because on the, the whole idea of a deal, right? I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. Strongmen in Europe, it's been 80 or 90 years since we've really seen the rise of one. But is it that history is too hard to think back on? Is it that, you know, we have short memories historically? Because Putin's always been who he's been. This is not a good guy. He's not going to be a better guy. If and when he chooses to disengage from Ukraine, it will likely be either because the Ukrainians have pushed him out altogether or because he has ultimately made the political, financial, military calculus that, like, it ain't going to happen. So, you know, they'll find some reason to go back home. But why the naivete, if I can use the word, for some folks to believe that, like, oh, if we can find a way to work with him, when you clearly can't. There's a guy sitting in the Kremlin bombing shopping malls full of innocent civilians. Clearly, this is not a guy who's thinking, A, rationally, or B, with any sort of willingness to come to some agreement that will ever be anything other than in his favor
1: yeah absolutely i mean i'm austrian and we all know hitler was actually austrian then he moved to germany and annexed austria and it became a part of the german reich and i think i see a lot of parallels between adolf hitler and vladimir putin because also hitler claimed that he wants to protect german-speaking population in neighboring countries and he used this as a pretext to attack them he also worked with false flag attacks something we saw as a pretext to the invasion of ukraine when putin claimed that the ukrainians actually want to attack russia or the donbass region and also hitler had this psychological problem that the reich the empire was not existing anymore after world war one this is also something that former KGB agent Putin is suffering of, obviously, because he always speaks about his time in the Soviet Union. He was a KGB officer. It was a very big empire. And recently, he more and more refers even to the Russian Empire, where also Finland was a part of, which is, of course, very scary if people think in categories of the 19th century. So. I think it's extremely naive to think we can talk or negotiate a sufficient deal for everybody because we just have to take a look at what kind of narratives are dominating in Russian television, in Russian state-controlled television, or we just need to listen to what Putin actually tells his own audience. And this is scary and very dangerous for our security in Europe and the West as a whole.
0: Let me ask you about the people that they have on Russian state television. It looks very much, Dietmar, like a Fox News set. They have four or five panelists up there. They have a woman who's sort of strutting about the stage, asking questions. And at the beginning of the Ukraine invasion, you know, it was these are anti-Semites. They're Nazis. They're drug dealers. They're drug addicts. All this stuff that made very little sense, I think, to the American sensibility. But then when you start talking about, oh, you know, we'll destroy Lithuania, we've given them such and such a time to agree to this. And it all seems to an outsider who has even a little bit of understanding of what's going on there, it seems crazy, frankly. And so are they handed messages down from Putin and his people directly, or do they understand that we have to prop up the president, we have to prop up Russia? There always seems to be, Dittmar, with Russia this inferiority complex they're all out to get us they don't want to leave us alone you know we have to defend ourselves when it it seems and i could be wrong i mean the german invasion of 1941 notwithstanding, that you know the rest of the world would just soon leave them alone you know in return for being left alone by the russians
1: yeah i think it's very funny because it reminds me about your former question when i said europe is divided and united at the same time and this is the same with uh, russia they have this feeling to be inferior but also superior and this is very dangerous because they believed in their military we saw it's not that strong yeah the ukrainians were defending very well and military power is very important for them because on economic terms they don't have a lot to offer many people are leaving the country with it experts for instance and so they need to give their people something to feel better to keep it in simple words and it's very similar to the soviet union they don't want to be liked or they don't want to be appreciated by us they want to be feared and if you ask me how accurate the tv shows is I think it can be a mix. Nobody actually knows. We know that these people are propagandists close to Putin. They don't work without his permission. But on the other hand, we cannot say, okay, if some guy uh, claims that they need to invade uh, Lithuania next week, that it actually will happen. So they put a lot of theories, a lot of, let's say, claims into the room. Sometimes it seems a little bit like they prepare the population for what is possibly coming. And that's just a scary idea, yeah? Because it's like I confront you with a lot of scenarios, so you are not surprised or shocked if one of them actually happens.
0: Do you think that there are still enough Russians who, like Putin, came up underneath the Soviet system where maybe they don't like this? The secrecy, the totalitarianism, the inability to speak freely, but they're used to it. Like, oh, I've been through this before.
1: I think the problem is, and uh, maybe that sounds a little bit weird, but if you take a look at the Soviet history then and the 70s, or even during Gorbachev time, yeah, it was still the system. It was still the Soviet system. It was still very suppressed, no matter if there was glasnost. And then with Putin, the whole authoritarian thing, it came slowly. Yeah, it's like this frog in the hot water. So they still think they are more free because they can leave the country. They can go for holidays in Turkey. They can access international media somehow. Now much more difficult than before the war, of course. But the problem is they don't appreciate freedom as much as we Western people do. Because their propaganda and their ideology tells them, if we are free, we have chaos, if we have freedom and too much democracy, then our country is going to fall apart. And this is the reason why Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin is actually attacking Ukraine so much since eight years. It's not new. It started with Crimea and Donbass. They do it because they don't want to have an example of how good democracy can work right on their neighborhood. They have this problem already with the Baltic states, but they are small states, so they are not so comparable. But Ukraine and Russia, they have similarities in history and also cultural similarities. And if Ukraine is successful, it would be a very dangerous example for Putin's regime.
0: Well, and that's what we heard, I think, early on in the Russian invasion was that Russian soldiers, you know, whether or not it was calling back or texting back to their families about The cities were beautiful. They were clean. The streets were wide trees, you know, new buildings. And they were sort of shocked by what they saw. Now, I know, Dietmar, a lot of these 18 year old conscripts probably come from very small towns, maybe come from the Russian Far East. So, you know, life in those towns probably hasn't changed a lot in the last 70 or 80 years. But it did seem that they were surprised by how nice everything was. And to think back on, as you mentioned, these sort of cultural and historical similarities in this whole idea of empire, which was, you know, Russia without Ukraine is a country, yet Russia with Ukraine is an empire.
1: Yeah, that's very much how it is. And these transcripts, they had no idea. They thought about uh, Ukrainians as subhumans or something like that. And I remember I was in Irpin and in Butcher in 2015 and small, very um, cozy towns, a lot of renovation after the revolution 2014. So people really took care about their neighborhood. They were not rich, but they had a good life Yeah. and then all these destructions it's really heartbreaking to see that. And some people claim, and I think there could be some truth in it, that the war crimes and the extra destructions the soldiers did there was because they were actually jealous because they saw Ukrainians are living well and they think about their life in some remote region of Russia and get completely out of their mind. Yeah, people who
0: are happy about where they live when they invade someplace don't take televisions, washing machines, dishwashers, because, you know, they've already got that stuff at home. Right. And it goes back to something I've talked about, Dietmar with other guests on the show regarding Russia and Ukraine is that Putin seems to have moved into a, if I can't have it, no one can sort of mindset
1: about the place. Yeah. I think the looting is also something we should talk about because if we see what happens when Russia is controlling territory, we see raping, looting, torture. We also know in 2014, when the Russian forces captured parts of the Donbass region, that executions of people were happening on a daily basis, but not because they were fighting or because they were war criminals. Russian forces were executing people just because they waved Ukrainian flags. And I think this is something which is very important to mention because if people say the war will stop or the suffering will stop when Ukrainians stop resisting, this is completely wrong because we know that an occupation regime by the Russians or by Russian proxies is a terrible nightmare. It's hell on earth. Right. And they won't stop until, like in their own country,
0: they've stamped out every last bit of freedom. Let me turn to the war in Ukraine as a way of assessing where the United States is from your perspective. So in the run up to Putin's invasion, President Joe Biden here in the US said, we're gonna stand firm, have continued to do that, have sent billions of dollars worth of aid, a lot of military aid as many NATO countries have as well. From your perspective, do you believe that the European community was surprised that Biden at first stood as strong as he did and has continued to do so? as this invasion grinds on?
1: I think the European community was aware that President Biden is very much supporting Ukraine because it was the Americans who predicted the war. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the, within the European community ignored the warnings. Yeah, So the days before the invasion, I was actually pretty much sure that it was gonna happen. Yeah, but a lot of people, couldn't believe it, it was just out of their perspective. So I think it was not surprising that the U.S. is supporting Ukraine very strongly. And I personally wish Europe would do more. Of course, the perspective is different because we are somehow afraid of the Russians, maybe because they are so close. And there is this discussion about, is it going to escalate? Maybe if we deliver these weapons, then we wait, then we deliver more, for instance, the Germans. But I think we should see it in a different way because if the Russians are moving closer to the EU, closer to NATO, to our borders and Ukraine borders to a lot of countries, then this is also an escalating factor. So I appreciate the support by the United States towards Ukraine. It's very important. So let's talk about misinformation and disinformation, which is your
0: expertise. You mentioned when we first started our conversation that you still saw that there are some members of parliament in European countries that are towing the Russian line on this, and we obviously see this here in the United States as well. Not only with some media outlets, but also what we would have once called conservative politicians—that you know, Ukraine isn't our problem—and we saw it. Dietmar, as we're recording this last night. That there was a debate in the state of Wyoming where congresswoman liz cheney is running for reelection against a collection of very i don't even know what the word is to be polite but to say they're crazy would be an insult to crazy people and ukraine came up and one of the candidates running against her just rattled off russian talking points not our problem they're a bunch of drug addicts it's corruption it's biden you know all this other stuff so Is that still a concerted effort out of Russia, even as their military is fighting? Are they still actively pushing those things? I mean, aside from Russian state television, are they still using their various channels that they've built up over the years, perhaps over the decades, to push that stuff into
1: different countries around the world? Yes, they do. On the beginning of the war, it seemed to me that they were kind of busy because they needed to control their own population, their own audience. But now I see there is so much trolling going on and politicians get influenced by it. And of course, sometimes it serves ideology. Sometimes it serves political goals. And what I observed for the last eight years is that if people want to believe something, if it serves their own interests as a politician, as a businessman or something, they are more eager to do it. They do it now even stronger than months ago.
0: Let me ask you this. So, as we think about Russia and we think about Putin, so we have elections coming up here in the US in, say, four months or so. And those elections will have a direct outcome on our 2024 presidential elections. Do you think that Putin will ramp up his activities in trying to muck around in our elections before they happen in
1: November? I think he will. He will try it. If the service are close, if it's like 50-50 chance to win, then he will try to interfere because then he has a chance. If it would be a clear win for President Biden, for instance, then he would not do anything because it would be a not smart investment because also disinformation costs money but i think it's not clear who is going to be the next president so it's maybe a close race and then he will interfere and he will use all assets he has to support donald trump because there is one reason that is obvious donald trump ruined the transatlantic corporation the euro atlantic block and President Biden had a lot of work to do to rebuild it and it worked well, but we can see how easily it can be destroyed again. So this would be very dangerous because Europe would be quite alone because we all know the policy of President Trump and the cooperation would be different because Donald Trump is not popular within the European Union. Our politicians do not like him. They don't even want to make pictures with him. Yeah, It doesn't look good. It's not good advertising. Yeah, so. I think it's gonna be very, very tough if that would happen.
0: And what are some of the ways that the Russians would go about this?
1: Well, first of all, what I remember when they were interfering during the elections in 2016, for instance, it was destroying the opponent. Because sometimes it's not only about supporting one candidate, it is also about digging and inventing false information about the other candidate. You remember all these conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton, yeah? They were invented or at least amplified by Russian propaganda. So they have a lot of strategy, they have a lot of experience. And I always say, Russia is not an economic power, it's somehow, as we can see, still a military power, maybe less than expected, but it is, of course the world leading disinformation power and propaganda power. And we still underestimate it. We are still not prepared. I'm not sure about the US, but in Europe for sure we are not. So
0: let's talk about that. What does a country need to do to prepare and what can individuals do? Let's start there.
1: So first of all, I think when we say that media literacy needs to be part of our education in elementary school or even university. That's good, but that's that's for sure not enough. We need media literacy in adult education. And we need to understand that media literacy is not for academics. It's not for journalists or for teachers or for. All these educated people, for them also, and unfortunately, very often, I understand also in my country that even people teaching at the university need more media literacy because they go to interviews at Russian propaganda outlets yeah, just so far. But we need media literacy for all people. It doesn't matter if they are lawyers or if they are taxi drivers or train drivers or policemen. Everybody needs media literacy because only then we have a shield, some protection against disinformation. Define media literacy for me. If I was going to go to a friend of mine and say, you need to be more media literate, what would that mean? So if we speak about media literacy and we are in this um, field of disinformation, fake news or misinformation, then it's about consuming media to understand that not all media is the same, to question who is spreading the information. Is it a reliable source? Is the source maybe very political? What is he or she gaining from this information? And of course, what about other sources? I think everybody, no matter if taxi driver, cook, teacher at school, absolutely everybody needs to be a little bit like a journalist. A journalist needs to check several sources before he or she is going to publish it. And I think everybody should have this mindset. So I don't see media literacy as something you can learn. It's something you can read about and then you can use it. It's something that you need to feel. It's more like a way of life. Sounds a little bit maybe philosophical, but you should always be aware that the information you consume can be wrong. So there's
0: taking in the information and then there's like taking that beat and saying, what am I looking at? Does this objectively agree with what I know to be, let's say, true? And I know, Dietmar, the truth is an increasingly murky asset in our world. So then you check several sources. But how does it spread so fast, as you said earlier, among those people who already want to believe something? Because it feels like that with misinformation and disinformation, it spreads very, very quickly across a community and very deep into that community. To pull someone out of that is almost a one by one process. It's, you can do it at
1: scale on the front end, but you've gotta do it almost individually on the back end. We know that disinformation spreads faster than debunking of disinformation. I recently, I made a little quick and dirty research about what happened in Kremenchuk. You remember the shopping mall rocket fire and Russian propaganda claimed that the shopping mall was closed, which is not true. And they even said it was closed since March completely wrong it was open all the time and there is a lot of evidence for it people have videos when they have been there the shops were still advertising two days before they wanted the customers to come yeah and of course a lot of witnesses but still if you were looking for the sentence something like the mall was closed you were only finding almost 90% of the tweets or posts from people who were spreading the disinformation version. And only a few people were debunking it. So all the lies were unanswered. And some people say, yeah, you should not give the lies too much attention. I don't agree with it. This refers to what you asked me before, what can ordinary citizens, so-called ordinary citizens do? We should always, if we are able to, we should debunk This information wherever we see it. If somebody posts on facebook that president biden is the devil there is no need because um, this posting justifies itself yeah so there is no need to react of course yeah but if somebody says that his citizenship is not real like they said about president obama then we need to react we need to debunk everybody needs to debunk Yeah, we need to react we need to check the sources so we need to be more active because there are so many lies unanswered and it's hurtful to see And I think we need to develop a collective media literacy also in our societies, because sometimes we see the fakes and nobody thinks you or she is responsible and then it still exists. Well, Deepmar, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining
0: me today and for taking so much of your time. Before we let you go, where can our listeners find you on social media and where can we find more about your work?
1: I like Twitter very much because there's a huge international audience to reach. So you can find me on Twitter, DietmarPichler1. And about my work, yeah, there are going to be some new press releases. I also give courses on an international level. So I'm mostly a media literacy lecturer. So I like to speak about media literacy, I like to give some hints how to handle the challenges, especially if it's about Russian disinformation, because there is one point I want to add. The Russian-Ukrainian conflict is so complex that it's very important to read some basics about it, as you know, to understand it and also to debunk the disinformation by the Russian Federation. Well, amen
0: to that. And as always, folks, the best way you can do this is to educate yourself. Remember, education is something that no one can ever take away from us. Curiosity about that stuff is important so that we have a good baseline. As always, everybody, you can find me on social media at Reed Galen on Twitter and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Deepmar, I want to thank you for joining me today and everybody else. We'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.